Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm Ed Krasnick, your co-host, my co-host, the great Jennifer Kalari, coming up in just a minute. This is a show that talks about mental health issues and also teaches skills. Skills, chills, and thrills. That's what you get in this show. We really need skills that you can use in the moment. That's what Jennifer uh, teaches us. We have people from all fields. We have leaders. We have inspirational leaders. We have a lot of comedians, people from the comedy world, people from the world of entertainment, music. Coming up in our next season, which is going to be season three of the show, you're going to hear there'll be more music people, people from the music field and other fields, sports, etc. We'll be practicing mental health skills. We'll be practicing something called mental fitness. What is mental fitness? It's the stuff that you do to gain mental health. These are really simple skills that can can make a big shift in your life. On today's show, I'm really excited. I did an interview with the founder of The Confess Project. The Confess Project is America's first mental health barbershop movement. It's a, an organization that trains barbers in black neighborhoods to be mental health advocates. It is revolutionary. It is amazing. And we have the founder, Great Talk with Lorenzo Lewis. That's coming up. And on today's show, we're going to talk about mental health advocacy, about asking for help. How do you do that? And taking action to help ourselves and, and others. I don't know why my voice is like this, but it's early. Today's show is brought to you by the new summer blockbuster movie, Emotional Transformers 7. All the action and adventure of people who were previously behaving like robots in a battle with their own emotions and the wizard-like therapist who charges them but on a sliding scale. They have all the tools. Will they use them to save Earth? All the Transformers you love, Optimistic Prime, Humblebee, Mindswipe, Beyond Good, Beyond Evil, Beyond Bed Bath & Beyond. Emotional Transformers 7, coming soon. We always like to welcome listeners, no matter what state you're in, here are emotional shout-outs. If wind chimes tick you off, welcome. If you're still carrying the shame of losing out during musical chairs at age four, welcome. If your favorite ice cream flavor is resentment chip, welcome. If you play a heavy metal ukulele, welcome. And if you get competitive with people during a yoga class and throw your back out, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And now, it's time once again for the Taylor Swift of the temporal lobe, the Cleopatra of the cerebellum, and the funk mistress of the frontal lobe, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, welcome to the program. I love new ones. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the funk awesome. mistress of the, of the frontal <laughs> lobe. You should put that on your, your website. I should. I should. We have an interview coming up in a, in a little bit with Lorenzo Lewis, who is amazing. You were not there for that. You had yeah. work and all kinds of stuff going on. So you were not able to be there for that, but we'll have that interview coming up. But I thought that today, in concert with that, we can talk a little bit about mental health advocacy and how to advocate for your own mental health and the well-being of others. Mm-hmm. How do you ask for help? How do people learn? I don't think people are very good at asking for help. They're not really. I mean, none of us are. It puts us in a very vulnerable place. And asking for help is vulnerable. 
before you can go out and advocate for yourself and ask for help, there's some kind of internal mental advocacy that has to happen. You know, when I work with clients, you know, clients who are really depressed and paralyzed by anxiety and really struggling in their own heads, they're beating themselves up. This is ridiculous. Look at everyone else. They can do it. Why can't you? You're making this up. They carry a lot of shame and guilt and anger towards themselves. So a lot of the work that I do with the people that I'm in sessions with is to help them, first of all, advocate for themselves, accept and understand, you know, their own mental health issues. If they had the flu and were really sick, they wouldn't be lying there going, you idiot, get up, go to work. You'd be okay. There's a certain amount of personal internal advocacy that you have to just come to terms with and accept and love yourself a little bit for. There are entire communities of people who are kind of, you're getting the message not to do those things. Mm -hmm. People of color, different kinds of communities, groups are not, they're not friendly to, it's not, it's not a friendly uh, uh, or a familiar thing. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's working through that, just the messaging and just talking about it, period. And then there's this bridge that we have to cross, which is talking about it and doing it. Saying it out loud. And there's a lot of misconceptions about therapy that, you know, therapists are going to sit there and figure you out and tell you things that, that aren't true about yourself. Or there's this idea that they're sort of in your head, picking apart your your life. But really therapy is much more about being a sounding board. A really good therapist doesn't really give advice. A good therapist listens, creates a safe and understanding space for you to speak out loud about the things that you're struggling with and for you to hear your own voice. A good therapist is really a sounding board and then can can pull out themes and, hey, do you realize you've said this a couple of times and ask questions, but it's really you doing the work in therapy, not the therapist. Yeah, and I think that that's what comes up in the interview with Lorenzo that you hear is that uh, he talks about knowing what's already inside of you. Yes, yeah, Um, amplifying that voice. Many people have this issue and lots of different cultures have this idea that you've failed somehow or that it's a weakness somehow or, you know, if you go to therapy. And honestly, I wish therapy was free for everyone. Honestly, it's just such a gift, I think, for people. It's such a special place to just have an hour a week or even every other week that's just about you. You don't have to worry about how it sounds to other people. But unfortunately, it's not available for a lot of people. There's a kind of listening, this empathetic listening, which is such a great skill and really something that you can you can practice anytime. And you certainly can do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. You can listen to yourself in a different way. You know, I almost want to give an example of it where you can you can help people because you have the you have the calm technique, which mm-hmm. has so many different aspects to it. Yeah. But just the listening part of it. Can you just demonstrate for a second? Let's just do this. I'll tell you something and maybe you can demonstrate like an example of not conscious listening and then one of active listening. So I'm just going to tell you something that's that's happening, you know, whatever. So, yeah. So, I I mean, I had a real disagreement with my boss. My boss is not listening. You know, my boss is like they're, they're always stressed out, crazy, doesn't know what's going on. And like, I feel... I feel like I'm walking on eggshells like the whole time and I don't know what to do. I don't know. Maybe you should just get another job. Like what if you just didn't work there? Well, get another job. Do you have to work there? 
I yeah. I mean, I I I, I mean, I don't really have a, any choice right now. You know what you gotta do. You so. know what you gotta do. You just gotta think positive. You just gotta be more mm. positive. You just gotta believe in yourself. You just gotta go in there and be who you are. All right. So let's mm. pause. Anything helpful there? No. Nothing. What happened to you? I go numb and I feel like I'm not listened to and I'm not connecting and there's something wrong with me. That's right. And the person who's doing it is probably thinking, oh my God, I have to help this person. I have to give them something usable (laughs) to give them. I have to make them feel better. We get very stressed when people share with us because we think we have to actually do something, but often they just want connection. So now we're going to take a different approach. And what would you call this? It's actually called mirroring. And it's, uh, I'll do a version of what I call mirroring, which is my calm technique. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe my boss. It's like I'm walking on eggshells. It's it's like I, I, I can't, you know, he's like in a mood all the time and I feel like I'm going to get fired and it's yeah. awful and I feel like I can't be myself and I, I, at work and I work so all, many hours. Oh my God. All, so, uh, so all day you're sitting there never knowing when this guy's going to poke his head out and just jab you and just say something awful. Yeah. Oh my God. How do you deal with that? That's, wow. I, Every well- day? Is he ever yeah, a good man? Every day. Is he ever happy? Mm, may, not that I notice, but you know, maybe, maybe, oh but God. but it's like it's like we're all tense and we all feel like we're going to get fired. Okay, so there's literally no emotional safety in that space at all. Everyone's sort of darting around, looking over their shoulder, terrified of this person. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you're you're really in terror, and that's why I come home. I have to lay down. Oh my god! So all day you're literally living in that state. From the minute yeah. you get to work. That's right. So I'm not really saying anything except what you're saying, right? Yes. But I'm you're actually enough. listening. And I get the sense that you're not doing it to do it. Right. And that's like, the key. Like you're yeah. actually listening. So here, let's just, I'll just show you just for a second, empathic listening, which is, there's nothing wrong with this technique. But you just said to me, you know, your boss is whatever. And I say, oh, I understand. Oh, that must be really hard for you. So when I say that, what does that feel like? Well, that feels like you're you're listening to me and you're but you're not you're not in there with me if right. you say it that way. Exactly. exactly. So when there's an observational statement, it sounds like you must be, I'm hearing that, you must be. And often if it's your own kids and you say something like this, they'll say to you, No, you don't. You don't understand, you don't get it. Right. So the the dance is really to be very present. You don't have to say anything new or original. The person isn't even looking for a solution sometimes. And when they are, they'll tell you. So we could have kept that conversation up. And eventually you probably would have said something like, have you ever been in this situation? What would you do? And now that's my cue. Now that's my cue to say, hey, have you thought about getting another job? Have you thought about going to HR? Have you thought they'll, the person will actually cue you when it's time to move towards solution? But you've got to stay in that moment. You have to stay in that safety, in that connection, in that just sort of bath of feeling like, oh, somebody actually is listening to me. Somebody's getting it. And often when we switch to solution too quickly, it feels like you said, Ed, it's sort of invalidating. Right. You're not, you're not hearing what I'm saying. You're not connecting with me. And you're going, well, you should just quit your job. Or, you know, the other thing people do is they say, oh, well, that happened to me. I had a terrible boss once with blah, blah, blah. And they go off talking about themselves, which also leaves the person feeling like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, that's nothing. Wait till you hear what happened to me. There's a lot of that in conversation, right? These are, these are big skills for today's world. 
mm-hmm. because people, as, as simple as this sounds, there isn't a lot of this going on. No, there isn't. And, and, and often people think they're doing it. They're being great listeners. They'll walk away thinking, Oh, I did a great job with my friend there. And the friend isn't feeling that the friend is feeling like, Oh, well, that just made me feel worse. It does happen. And a lot of it is you, you try, you solved it, but you didn't yeah. listen. Yeah. As I said, Jennifer wasn't able to be there for this interview, but we want to play for you now. This guy is a, a real hero, a real inspiration. His story is amazing, his own experiences. He grew up incarcerated, spent time in prison, struggled with his own mental health quite a bit, and learned about the power of confession. And also, when he wasn't struggling that way, he had an aunt, an auntie, who had a beauty shop. And he observed how he saw how people connect and share their problems in a, in a beauty shop setting. So what did he do? He created something called the Confess Project. The Confess Project is a mental health barbershop movement. It's an organization that trains barbers in black neighborhoods all over the country to be mental health advocates. They've trained over 1,300 barbers. It's in 45 cities, and it's working. It's working. So this is a guy who not only talks about it, he does it. I had a conversation, and I want you to listen now to the great Lorenzo Lewis, the founder of The Confess Project. Here we go. First of all, which do you think is harder, starting an entire mental health movement, changing the mental health landscape, or getting on Zoom? Which of the three? Because I'm telling you, um, the way you make it look is like, I, I, I cannot... This movement is so fantastic, and you've had so many interviews, and I know you talk about it all day long, but the difference between ta- it's talking about it and actually doing it are two different things, and I think a lot of people talk about mental health. Uh, it's a good conversation to have, but not a lot of people actually do the kinds of things that you're doing. What do you think it is that, that allows you to be able to do this kind of work? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think what's really amazing about the connection of doing it is going through the issues that we know we're fighting for every day for men and families that that come from the communities we come from, that I come from. I think what gives me the, the tenacity is my lived experiences, you know, being incarcerated at the age of 17, being in a behavioral health facility as a youth after losing my father, and nevertheless just facing depression and anxiety um, due to just not knowing my own identity and the ways of the world. I think that's really been a driver overall is, you know, knowing that the story that I have can really help someone beyond that could help build a movement that could spark a fire to really change the mental health industry in itself. And so I think, you know, using that tenacity in those stories have really, I think, gotten me a long way because it's a, it's personal, you know, when it, when it's, and it's not just a, it's not science. It's not, just something I'm doing for fun. It's, it's actually a, it's a commitment to my life and that commitment, you know, stretches on to others. So you were incarcerated and you had all kinds of, of issues growing up. You called it the Confess Project. What is it about confession that is so powerful and why, why the Confess Project? And how do you empower people to, you, to have that in their own lives? 
you know, the, the word confess um, obviously shows up in a lot of contexts. You know, some may see it as in a biblical context. Um, it's also confessions have been a, a huge part of just a societal norm of when we confess, we become our best. And that's one of our mantras at the Confess Project is that we lean into knowing that when we uh, relieve and talk about those things that may be, you know, keeping our light or things dark around us, that we just become better. You know, when we become more vulnerable, when we, you know, we show up to be better listeners, better communicators, and that really unlocks the human powers that lies within beside of us. And so the, the name Confessions really, I think, is, is pretty straightforward, but I think it has so much more power. You know, it's just, you know, been shown time and time again, you know, when, you know, when you're, when you're able to talk things out, when you're able to verbalize and self-actualize and, you know, practice self-preservation, like we, we really become very powerful people, which we all are. And so I think that's, that's a part of, you know, um, starting it is, is how I always viewed it is, it's kind of giving folks that internal power that they already have, using it for good, using it to help others and ultimately using it to change their communities. So. So we already have this internal power, as you say, but yeah. people don't realize that they have it. And also like very simple things when it comes to mental health, very simple things, listening, not trying to take away or fix, yep. but actually yep. listening. And that's a parental thing. You know, parents, I mean, being a parent, you think you have to fix your kids' situations. And the thing is, people have feelings. They have feelings and thoughts, and they have to learn how to relate to those things. And there's nothing wrong with them for having those things. And so those are like, those are basic things, but a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people are not brought up that way. Certainly, I'm sure that in your life, you didn't, you didn't learn that until a certain age. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I think that, you know, something else that really, you know, uh, our lived experiences and our beliefs and the cultures and different things that we've, that we grew up in and, uh, you know, really have allowed us to believe a certain way about mental health and what comes with mental health, the way we feel about it. And so I think that we, we have to also acknowledge that, you know, there is a, um, a realistic side of therapy, medication. There's a lot of modalities around healing. And I think that we have to understand that beyond the way we perceive it is also a large, we have a lot of power over how we deal with it. And as you just stated, we are so much in a way we have to feel like we need to fix it when in fact, sometimes it's just learning and growing, having grace with ourselves. And beyond that, it's just accepting, you know, we accept the way that we are, you know, we just become better humans. And I think that we truthfully, um, it, it gives us gratitude when we learn to practice acceptance as well. So. Well, one of the brilliant things, I mean, there's so many brilliant things about the Confess Project, but the idea of bringing it into a place where people go, where they congregate, where they share stories. Now, you experienced this when you were growing up, right? You, you, you live this, and then you put these two amazing things together, the power of confession and the barbershop as a community center. It's a communal issue. Like mental health is a community-based issue. It's not a problem. It's not a thing. It's it's all of ourselves doing all this work. Right. So the tell us about the barbershop. Like, what is it that makes the barbershop a place that you can you can actually have these kind of conversations and take people further in helping them? You know, the barbershops historically have been seen as a 
um, place of change, um, particularly in the African-American community. You know, we go back to the Marlin brothers and Martin Luther King and the civil rights era, voting rights and the NAACP, you know, they used barbershops then to really, you know, show up for, you know, go against voter suppression, um, a lot of the issues and challenges of, you know, human rights. You think about uh, some of the rights that we should have to have freedom of speech. They use these barbershops as, a, as their meeting place. Even beyond that, you know, when we think about some of the first opportunities, particularly around wealth building, owning ownership of barbershops and salons was a something that was passed down in families. And so, you know, if the grandfather was a barber and the father would end up getting to barber, it just, you know, so it's become even a internal family club of a craft and a skill, but it's, it's the connecting point of community. It's a connecting point of, you know, really beautifying the industry, but it's a part of that industry is really connected to family. It's connected to grooming. It's also connected to self-care and feeling good. And so taking all of that, right, doing the work of mental health is a no-brainer. Spending 30 to 45 minutes with someone, cutting their hair, giving them a shave, you know, washing their hair, it's intimate. There's sharp objects involved. You, you're not in control, right? You know, when you're, you're there getting the grooming, you know, that, that barber, that stylist, they're, they're in control of that moment, right? They're giving you what you have came there to patronize them for. And so when you think about that, it's, it's kind of almost the same way of being in a therapy couch, being going to therapy. That person is there with you. They're pretty much, most of the time, either helping control the conversation or facilitate the conversation. And it's just you and them. <laughs> and so when we think about the power in it, it's the same thing. It's just an innovative and unorthodox way of reimagining this is the new therapy. This is how therapy has been done for decades. And I don't think we've given it, you know, Amer the American healthcare system have not given it a fair shot. And I think we're now here to help them say, well, we can and Harvard University believes that we can, and other institutions believe that we can, and corporations believe that we can. And so that's what I'm most excited about. So It's so fantastic on so many levels, because you're bringing the community together to deal with something that we all experience and we all feel. And particularly in the, in the Black community, what do people need to know about the specific challenges? Because like I interviewed the Harlem uh, people that were members of the Harlem Globetrotters who were doing this documentary. And I introduced, they were alumni. And I said to, I said to somebody, I said, well, what did you do if you were depressed as a kid? Well, I would go tell my mother, he says, I tell my mother and my mother said, you're depressed. Why don't you go depress some dishes? How about that? Want to do that? Wow. So, so people are taught to be strong because they're in a culture that, that is oppressing them. And so they're taught to not be vulnerable. You cannot be vulnerable. You got to be strong first. You got to survive. How do you change that, that culture? How do you change that, that philosophy that, you know, you're dealing in a, in a, in a place that has a lot of conflict to it and a lot of oppression? And so being vulnerable is not necessarily the first thing that you're taught. You know, for African-Americans, it, it goes back to, to, you know, honestly, to slavery, right? When you think about some of the unique challenges that happened during that time period of control and power dynamics, well, now we're in, we're post that, and we're, you know, obviously we're still dealing with some of those same challenges, even throughout the years of some of the challenges that African-Americans have faced and still facing today. We now have to start to start to understand just the concept of freedom and the form of 
mental freedom and, and also self-belief and self-care. And I think that once we start to now recognize that we have the power of how our mental health is taken control of or how we treat ourselves, how we feed and how we feed ourselves the best. And we know that that produces the best for ourselves and our community. That helps to start to wire something differently. And, and so I think a part of what the Confess Project does is we're training these barbers. They are first unequipped, you know, medical professionals. They're not medical professionals at all. They, in fact, come from urban and rural and communities across the country, different live, different households. But very commonly, they actually have control of a person's appearance, totally. And when they walk out of that salon or that shop, in some kind of way, that will dictate how people view that person. That kind of power and trust really is, I think, um, is contagious. And I think when you think of it that way, I think that allows the community, I think, to start to uh, really connect to that. But I think beyond that is viewing barbers uh, are rather everyday people. I, I believe that a lot of the issues that we're dealing with in mental health, everyday people will solve. Them. You know, I believe that a healthcare system plays a part, but I truthfully believe that everyday people will solve the issues that we're looking at. I, I don't feel that we're waiting on that to happen. I think we have, I think we have it and we have to show people that we all have magical powers inside of us that change our reality, change the way that we do things. I think we're just giving the self-efficacy overall. And I think that helps people to, you know, kind of to, to, to navigate, to stay on track. So I totally agree with you about that. I think that doing it in the community, you know, I, I mean, I've had a lot of therapy in my life. If therapy could be, could be converted to frequent flyer miles, I'd be eligible to go to Pluto. I've had a lot of therapy. Okay. I'm lucky to have a lot of therapy. I've also had a lot of the wrong kind of therapy. <laughs> the thing is that empathetic listening, mm. validating people, yep. hearing them, actually listening to them and hearing them. These are skills that everybody has. Being conscious about it is a whole other other thing and being conscious of the power of those kind of things. But they're very simple things. Listening to yourself, hearing what's going on, paying attention to it, making choices about how you deal with yourself and how you deal with other people. Choices, conscious choice. But you can't be conscious if you're surviving. If you're in survival mode, you're not at, you're not making choices. You're yeah. just survive. And most most people in this country, especially with what's going on, are surviving. Tell us about how you train barbers and what you train them in, because I'm thinking that if you can train barbers, you can train other people. So we train our barbers on a four core area around uh, it's a four core model um, that's transformative. It's, it's, it's believe it or not, it's a therapist use very similar techniques. And so active listening is one part of this, this model, positive communication, validation and stigma reduction. And there's also a crisis uh, mobilization component of showing barbers how to reach out to a therapist or call 911 if someone is in a, you know, a, a, an emergency, a mental health emergency. It's giving them that literacy. And it's also those skills are also being used in a 30 minute increment. So what this looks like in real time is someone cutting a young man's hair. You know, he's listening. He's asking him how his day went. You know, how, how is his family? How's school going? The young man may reply. Things are going well, but, you know, he wishes life is better, right? Whatever. That validation, that barber's able to step in and say, you know, I hear you. I'm here to support you. Hey, tell me a little bit more, you know, like, so how do you feel about this? That communication is positive. You know, it's not demanding. It's not aggressive. It's not impulsive. It's not, hey, they're trying to be their father. It's showing them that they're human, that they're validated, they're seen. 
beyond that, maybe the young man gets to a point where he shuts down in the chair. I don't really want to talk about it anymore. You know, and then from there, you know, that stigma reduction kicks in. Hey, you know, it's okay to, you know, feel the way you feel, right? So those are four areas in a real life. That's how it looks, right? It's so it's just a natural session, right? Of getting getting their haircut and getting a session, grooming session. But those skills were all practiced in that example I just explained in yeah. some kind of way. What could also happen to someone, and we've had this happen before, a barber sits down with his client, he's starting to cut his hair. He was like, hey, this is my last haircut. When I leave out, I'm going to take my life by suicide. And so immediately that barber had to go into crisis mode, right? Into, you know, getting that client to a therapist or to a mental health hospital. We were able to help save that client's life because that barber was trained. So that's the other side of this. We've also had it where the same situation, but that barber hadn't had our training. He wasn't equipped. He didn't have that same support. So it, you know, it, it didn't end as worse as we would have thought, but the client had a psychotic episode. He went missing. And so what if he had a new, what the first barber knew that I explained in the first example, that's how it all looks in real time, because this is what's happening every day in communities all over the country. And so these are untapped potential conversations that can change lives. And I don't know if we have a moving force in our system that can move that fast at that speed that can help decrease suicide and or mental health issues within our communities. And so that's why the Confess Project is here. So It's so important and it's so fantastic and it's what people need. It's what all people need. So this is a real model to me. It's a real model for every community. I yep. understand that, that there's a specific stigma with the black community and I understand the need for, for that. However, I'm telling you, Anybody who watches this, anybody yeah. who's observing this, yeah, this yeah. is all communities, all people. And I guess that's a question that I would ask you is, what's the best way for somebody who is not a person of color to support you and to be an ally for you? What is the way to do that? Absolutely. And, and I think to kind of to piggyback on the um, last part of the question is the Confess Project is America's first mental health movement beyond training barbershops, turning barbershops into mental health hubs, is that we support fire, social and law enforcement with trauma-informed care strategies and mental health strategies to help support their communities as well. As we know, the barbershop in the Black community particularly sees every socioeconomic background there is from our homeless neighbors to our school principals to single mothers to young men, every imaginable socioeconomic background enters a barbershop. And I'm sure it's like that in all communities. So in fact, what we're doing is tapping in at that potential in that population. Roughly barbers can see 20, 20 to 30 clients a week. That's new and existing clients. That's roughly about 100 clients a month, right? And so and the visits can vary from once or twice a week or once every other week. When you think about that, you're right. We can help train law enforcement and, you know, police officers and we teachers. Right. And so I mean, we, we've we also partnered with the Texas Rangers. You know, we went in and, 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 and trained, you know, with their players and their staff at the Rangers. Obviously, we're in partnership. The best man can be campaign with Gillette. And so, you know, I've, I've obviously, you know, been able to train and work and, and do workshops, even with employees in corporate workplaces. So you're right. This is a, I think, a intersectional model that can really technically be used anywhere when you're thinking of it in terms of people being advocates and practicing the peer support. And a lot of people may identify it as to help people that may be, you know, struggling or just be in need of some resources. 
I think it's so interesting too. Well, I can't think of a bigger, so there are so many communities that need this, but especially law enforcement. I think that's a community that really needs these skills. What you're talking about are basic skills. You're not going to college for eight years. These are basic skills that are already in people. I think that's a very important point because um, this is available to you at all times. You just don't know it. So now we're shining a light on it. Now, oh, I could do that. Oh, and it does feel differently when somebody's listening to me. It does change how I feel. If they're really listening, if they're trying to fix, then it's then it doesn't uh, register as much. There's nothing wrong with feelings and there's nothing wrong with thoughts. (laughs) And, you know, but really, we need campaigns like that. Feelings are not going to kill you. Yeah. yeah. Not not feeling might. (laughs) You know, that might, you know, so I and I know that there's like this whole ecosystem. So you started with black boys and men. So we have barbershops. But now you're also saying kids, you're saying a, a joy and wellness hub and some of the other programs that you're developing, whether it's, you know, law enforcement or partnering or this big, this big giant ecosystem that you're working with. Are there different skills that men and women need to have or that men and families have? And why do you start with men first? Men and particularly African-American men are one of the hardest to reach when it comes to you know, some of these services that we're talking about, you know, a lot of it is, you know, it's culture is also, you know, we think about, you know, some of the um, structural issues and, and, and you know, obviously racism. And I, I think that's kind of across, uh, across the community as a whole. Um, and then it even gets a little bit more, you know, staggered and more complex when you start talking about our LBGTQ community members. And so if, if they're black on top of that, the geographic barriers. And so, you know, like it can become so much more convoluted than what we can imagine reason why we really start with men in general is because one, they're really hard to reach when it comes to getting these services, access to services. Typically men less likely to really just go out and get, you know, the, the type of care because of just the way that they were nurtured and raised, you know, in their times of growth, you know, men just lead so they have so much responsibility in the community. And I think we have strong men generally who will be healthy families um, and, and, and healthier children and better ecosystems and safer communities. And when we think about the, the large scale of you know, Black men that are incarcerated, when we think about young Black men that are also a part of the juvenile justice system. I'm also a product of that. When you start to get into those things, it gets very complex. And so we need strong men to help really lead in communities. And we also need strong families and strong women. And so I think all of us ultimately need to get there, right? I think it's, it's about all of us thriving and being able to be in the best place. But I think truthfully, men hold so much influence and more than what I think a lot of people could probably to wrap around. Why not go after, I think, one of the hardest groups to deal with, or rather public health may have had a, a challenge with getting support. I, I even know, you know, records high men, we all know, are less likely to go and get physical checkup. You know, so, you know, you think about heart disease and a lot of other physical challenges. So you you know that mental health is probably the last on the list, right? And so if someone's not going to go and get their heart checked out of their body, check their blood pressure, you definitely know they're not going to go to a therapist, right? That's the last thing on the list. And so we have to think about innovative ways to have a conversation. This work that we do have even raised individuals to Oh, I got sleep apnea because I noticed that I don't get good rest, but it was because of a barbershop session that we had a training and now they recognize that they have had issues with their sleep or 
some anxiety that was unforeseen and they thought it was connected just, oh, this is who I am. I think it's the education and the learning that comes with how we should be in the best place mentally uh, has really been able to pull out, I think, a lot in the work that we do. Well, I love the idea of how yeah, I'm going for grooming. I'm going to a place where I'm going to be groomed for how I look on the outside. The question is, how do I look on the inside? And that is like a poster. I have that up in every barbershop. I'm like, how, do, how are you looking on the inside? I'm just absolutely fascinated by this. And I'm inspired by your, you and your story. And I've talked to some of the members. I've talked to some of the people involved with the Correct Project, with the Confess Project, which is the Correct Project. No, no Freudian slip there. What happens next? What's working and what's the biggest obstacle? You know, what happens next is that uh, we've just relocated our offices to Atlanta, Georgia. So we're really looking forward to you know, tackling this, the issue there in Atlanta and being a part of the work there in Atlanta. Nevertheless, you know, we're looking to continue to expand um, into to Boston here in the next year and really lifting up our partnership that we've had in the last few years with, with Gillette and really starting to build out that Northeast ecosystem more stronger. You know, we're, we're open to seeing how we can help support more of our community members who, who may be living globally as well in some kind of ways, um, or that live in larger cities that may be more diverse, a part of the African diaspora. Um, and so those are some conversations that are being had as well. Um, and I think some of the barriers, COVID really stricken the economy in a lot of ways, you know, economically. I'm interested to see how, how things really turn out around that. But I think we're having to be proactive and ensuring that um, this work continues to go forward, along with policy changes and leadership changes across the country. Just continuing to make sure that this conversation doesn't be put put by the wayside, right? And I think it stays a priority. That will be the ultimate push for it to stay a priority conversation amongst the years because we're so far behind when you think about the progressing that mental health have had in the Black community. It has become a popular conversation, I like to say, across social media. A lot more people are talking about it in you know, entertainment and culture. But I, in fact, know, just like anything else, that there has to be really strong leadership to continue that this conversation makes its vertical to, to ensure sustainability across the country. And so um, I've worked in the mental health system for uh, 14 years. I spent a decade working in juvenile justice after my release and in the behavioral health sector. And so a lot of these things I was very familiar with, I saw, I was used to dealing with. I was very aware, but I was very appalled when I got into community organizing and outreach in, in this space that I was a lot of disconnect. My hope is that, and my largest wish is that we don't let this fall by the wayside as the time go on and that we continue to put people, strong leaders in place across city, state, county, you know, leadership that can continue to lift the conversation up to, to provide the resources that, that needs to be available. So, Well, I think that as as you, you you're training these advocates, these barber advocates who know about different uh, support systems in different areas, whether it's how to find a therapist or whether it's how to find you know, help based on whatever issues you're having. And they can direct these people and you're teaching them how to do that and connecting them with other parts of the, the community. I also think that in every walk of life, whether it's entertainers, athletes, people who are campaigning politically, yep, yep, you yep, know, yep. Th- we, got, we, have, we have elections coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is the campaign. The campaign is mental, is mental health. I think that people just don't have, they're not aware of their own ability and they're not aware of, they, they have skills available to them. And that list, empathetic listening, 
validation, mirroring how you relate to yourself. What do you do when you're depressed? What do you do when you have feelings of suicide? What do you do? What's the skill? Tell me what to do. So I think that's a really important thing. Skills-based work, because people do not, they still really don't know. They don't know why, why they're so, I mean, they're anxious because the anxiety is such a big thing because of what's going on in our world. But also anxiety is your brain trying to protect you, trying to keep you safe. So people don't know that. So they need to know because it changes the way you relate to yourself. You know, they don't know that thoughts and feelings are a two way conversation. Like you can talk back to them. You don't you don't have to have them talk to you like you can. And if they're talking to you, you might listen as opposed to try to run away from them. Like these are these are things that most people don't know, but they're really basic things. Like if you don't have, if you don't know those things, you're going to live a life of survival. You know, the best you can do is survive. You're not living, you're surviving. And I think it's important for people to thrive, like you're saying, and to live and to know that you can live, you can be alive, you can be well, even in this culture. I don't know. This is just a really, I, I really am inspired because a lot of people talk about it. You're doing it. So I, can't thank you enough. Tell them where they go to find out more and to get involved. Feel free to visit theconfessproject.com, um, the Confess Project across all your social media platform. To be involved as a barber, reach out to our page. And, you know, we have a pretty simple sign up sheet. Um, someone to be in contact with you about next steps. We also have a self-paced barber course on the website. It was really um, easy for barbers out there that may be in cities where it may not be too many other barbers or the work may not be as prevalent or maybe we just hadn't really got there so they can still get engaged. Um, there's also a bi-weekly call with barbers across the country after they're trained. So we're building an ecosystem and community coalition that's happening, that's growing every day as we continue to train more and more barbers monthly. And so, um, yeah, uh, feel free to support our work, you know, at confessproject.com with any donations and support as we continue to grow. $25 can um, support a barber that could be trained today in our program is a minimum of $25 of what it takes to get them certified in our model. Um, and so feel free to, to donate to our work is to see we one barber can reach um, 100 clients monthly. And those, those numbers could be you know, over years, roughly you know, 1,200 people annually can be reached by one barber. And so I think that is significant. And so more barbers, the more people can be reached with, you know, the skills like active listening and validation and referring people to therapists. And so the lowest $25, we can, you know, one barber can reach 1200 people. Amazing. I'm opening up a whole other can of worms. We're going to do this on another show because we're going to have a panel or we're going to do something with this. And I don't hear it talked about. I really believe that diversity and inclusion is a mental health issue. I believe that racism is a mental health issue. I don't hear anybody talking about those things. And I want to talk to you about it because I know that you have a lot of it. I want a whole panel to talk about these things. Diversity and inclusion, racism, a mental health issue. It is. I, I really, and look, I, I grew up in a, in a very racially tense neighborhood in Boston in the 60s. I've lived through this stuff uh, on my own, and I'm Jewish. I've had my experiences with, with oppression and with anti-Semitism a lot. This is a mental health issue, this, this, this race issue and the diversity and inclusion yeah. issue. We have, to, we have to join those issues together 
because then we can actually have a conversation about it. Because you're talking about mental health. Everybody yeah. wants to talk about mental. Everybody's like, this is a popular thing now. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, mental health, everything. Oh, let's talk about mental health. Diversity? No, we're not going to talk about that. Not, not, not people of different colors are not going <laughs> to talk about it. We're not talking about it. Yeah, I know. And, right? I know, I know. right? Nobody talks about it. And racism is like, there's horrible race issues in this country. It's hard. We're like learning. We're uncovering how horrible it is. But nobody talks about where does it come from? Like, what is the issue? What are the issues that are really happening to stir up this kind of behavior? Like, where does the behavior come from? Could it be that mental health has some impact on how people learn how to hate? You know, they learn how to hate because they hate themselves. Mm. But more than that, but if you don't, you know, you cannot hate another person if you don't hate yourself or parts of yourself. So how do we start talking about this stuff? I'm going to ask you again, if you'd be part of a panel, let's talk about this and let's talk about it. Let's talk about how the Confess Project, you know, is, is a tool to to work on on race as mm. well, you know? I can see that. I, I totally agree. And I, I, obviously, I think that's why we're doing the work we're doing with, you know, police, fire and social workers, public school teachers around trauma-informed care and mental health and particularly how they deal with, you know, diverse and possibly complex groups of folks in, in our communities in regards of, you know, some of the poverty and different traumas that they bring into the world. But a lot of these things, again, that really a lot of it wasn't their direct fault, right? Mental health is a part of a racial racial equity conversation. It's not excluded. And I, I'm glad, Ed, that you're holding this up as an opportunity to engage people. It's not separate. It's just like crime is not separate from mental health. It is, it is a collective conversation that has not been had. Gun right, you know, all of these things, again, because mental health stems across environment, physical, emotional, and all parts of our life. So I think that once we stop looking at mental health as not a part of that, then I think we are defeating ourselves. And I think that's a largely why a lot of the issues are the way they are in our country, because we have separated. A lot of people are really ashamed to talk about their own mental health, but I think that's really the, the issue. And I get it. Like I was, I was once there myself, and I'm sure you as well. Is. So yes. I, I think that podcasts like this should encourage people to, to, to take a risk on themselves and that risk could hopefully help change their life and somebody else's. So you are a hero without question. And the confess project is miraculous. It's working. Anybody who hears about it, anybody who hears the idea of it, even they think everything's possible. Yeah. You're showing people what's possible in their community and in their world. I can't thank you enough for the time. I know you're very busy. We're going to talk again. All the best to, to everything that you're doing. You're, you're a hero in my eyes, and I know in a lot of people's eyes. Thank you. More conversations to come. Absolutely. Thanks again, Ed. What can you say about that? That guy is a, a, real, a real hero, and it's such a pleasure to talk to Lorenzo. And if you want to find out more about the Confess Project, which is expanding all over the country, you can go to theconfessproject.com, the Confess Project, C-O-N-F-E-S-S project.com. Well, that's our show for this week. Please check us out wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to makelightmedia.com, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T, one word, media.com. Find out all about Jennifer's work 
at connectedparenting.com, connectedparenting.com, her amazing work. It's a huge community, worldwide community of people who are learning, supporting, and the services that they offer are amazing. And you've been listening to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. Look for the good. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari. We'll see you next time.